Eugene is going to speak for us today. So let us welcome uh, Pastor Eugene once again. By the way, uh, he graduated from APU, Joseph Pacific University, and he got accepted by the same uh, grad school program in Princeton. He got a, a master program for Princeton. So I'm so proud of our intern pastor. Let's, let's hear him. I, I'm telling him, don't go to Princeton because that's too far. And, but he says he's going to probably go one year. But yeah, hopefully, I, I don't know. I mean, I, he has to hear from the Lord, right? How God is leading him. Yeah. Let's welcome Eugene. <laughs> oh, my head's not too shiny. <laughs> How's everybody doing today? Good. Yeah, before I start, I actually, um, last week I was in my car and um, for the first time, I turned on the podcast and I listened to myself. And I, I listened to two of them. And only one word came into my mind. Actually, it's two words. Slow down. Take a breath, right? So, yeah, I mean, I, I was listening to myself. I was like, dude, you need to chill out, man. You're just speaking line after line without even taking a breath. So this time I'm going to hopefully take a couple of breaths as I speak. And it won't be so fast as I'm speaking. Now, I want to start off with a little story. Um, I graduated, oh, wow, it's almost been three weeks ago. And as, as I was standing in the graduation line with my gown on, just sweating because it's super hot outside, our gowns are black, I just wanted to be my, by myself, just standing in line, just wanted to get through, through, the, through, the, um, through the graduation without being interrupted, just being in my own headspace. And as I was just standing there, um, I noticed that there was some kid that was kind of staring at me. And he was just kind of looking at me. And I knew he was staring, but I was making sure that I didn't make eye contact with him. I was looking the other way. And, you know, he just started talking to me. He's like, hey, how are you doing? And I, at first, I acted like I didn't hear him. But he was insistent. So I said, and I looked at him. I said, I'm doing fine, man. And he says, how old are you? And I said, I'm 28. And I, was, and I was thinking to myself, you think I'm older because I'm bald or what is it? And then he's like, no, no, no. I didn't ask him that, but he's like, no, no, no. You just, you just seem like you're an interesting guy. And I was like, okay, man. And we just started to talk. And I don't like, the conversation was going all sorts of places. He was talking about himself, his life. And all of a sudden we started talking about what we were planning on doing after graduation. And I told him I was going to seminary. And I was uh, pursuing a degree into becoming a pastor. And then we started to talk about religion. And he started to talk to me about his problems with religion. And he told me about how he thinks the church isn't what God wants it to be. And I kind of questioned him about it. I was like, what do you mean, man? And he was giving me these vague answers. But I came to the conclusion he didn't like church because of the people inside the church. And so I... I formulated a question. I was like, so do you not like church because maybe some of the people at the church you've been going to, or maybe you've had some bad experiences at the church? And he goes, yeah, I've noticed that a lot of Christians, they, they claim to go to church and they claim to follow Jesus, but they don't act very much different. They act very much the same as other people who claim not to know Jesus. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, that's, that's actually pretty true. A lot of times we fail to be good ambassadors of Jesus, to be true representatives of the kingdom of Christ. 
And as I, was, as I was doing my devotions this week, I came across Mark chapter 2. And Mark is my favorite gospel because I believe it's the simplest gospel and it's the first gospel. So I like Mark. And as I was reading Mark, sorry. As I was reading Mark and I was reading this passage, this passage really resonated with what that guy and I was talking about, how people can be false representatives of Christ. And let me read this passage for you. Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12 says, When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there were no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, Son, your, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to this paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, Stand up and take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on this earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up and take your mat and go home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out and before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the word of God. All right, let, let, us, let me pray for you guys. Yeah, dear Heavenly Father, as we uh, just, deep, just dive deeper into your words today, Lord, I pray that we can uh, truly just glean from this passage what you have in store for us this week. Just, um, just mold our hearts, open our hearts, open our minds to receive your words and receive the truth that you have for us today, Lord. And just, I also pray just for the boldness to speak your word and the courage to just preach. We pray all these things in your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So yeah, this passage is pretty crazy, right? There's this crowd that's blocking... They hear that Jesus came to Capernaum and all these crowds followed Jesus and they were blocking the house that they were in. So this, this is a multiple story house and, and these, there were so many people there that nobody could get inside the house because it was so packed. And these, these, um, these uh, friends, they had this man and they were just carrying him around in this mat and they were doing all that they could to get to Jesus. But the crowd was blocking him. So I want to ask us, are we the crowd? The crowd, are we the crowd? And let me explain a little importance about crowds in Mark. In Mark, in the, in the gospel, Mark, crowds are everywhere. Crowds follow Jesus. Crowds are blocking, uh, blocking their way to Jesus. But in the gospel of Mark, they mention the word crowds a lot. But the thing is, the Gospel of Mark also makes a very clear distinction between the crowd and discipleships, and disciples, I mean. Jesus never points at the crowds and say, these are my disciples, and he never points at the disciples and, say, and talks to them like they're the crowd. And many times when he speaks to the crowd, he speaks to them in, in parables. But when he speaks to disciples, he will explain those parables. So there's this very distinct distinction between the crowd and the disciples. 
And I just often wonder, are we the crowd sometimes? Are we the ones blocking others from Jesus? Like how, how, many, how often do we intentionally prevent people from coming to Jesus? And this was really just, uh, really took me back to that conversation I had with that guy during graduation. And I think he was trying to get to the point that people at church were preventing him from coming to Jesus. The way those people were acting was preventing him from coming to Jesus because he could not see the love of Jesus in them and he could not see the truth that Jesus brought because those people were not being true representatives of Jesus. And another dangerous thing about being a part of a crowd is when you're part of a crowd, you're not in the inside. People part of the crowd are always on the outside. They're in the peripheral. They're not the insiders. They don't have, um, they're not strict. They're not closely associated with Jesus, but they're part of the crowd. And there's a reason that they're a part of the crowd. It's because they, don't, they haven't really yet received the truth and they haven't yet started to follow God and Jesus in, in the light, in the light of truth. So they're just on the outside. They're just absorbing what Jesus is teaching, but yet they haven't actually put steps into actually being disciples of Jesus. And that's what really sets, sets the crowd apart from being what a disciple is. And some dangers of becoming a part of the crowd is that when you're part of the crowd, you become passive. You become passive because you don't feel like you have re- real responsibility because there's so many people in this crowd. You don't have, um, you haven't really committed to the, you haven't really committed to, um, to Jesus, but you're just sitting amongst this crowd and you don't really have any responsibility. And there's this, there's this um, theory, it's called the diffusion of responsibility. And it's a psychological phenom- phenomenon. And I don't know if any of you guys know what diffusion of responsibility is, but it's also called the bystander effect. And the diffusion of responsibility is a psychological phenomenon in which people are less likely to take action when in the presence of a large group, large group of people. So people will be in this large group of people and they will not feel any responsibility because there's so many people in this group. But there's dangers to this. For example, imagine you guys are in a large city in a, on a bustling street and you notice a man fall, fall on the ground and he starts convulsing and having a seizure. But many people turn and look, but no one moves to help or you know, call for medical assistance. Why? It's because there's so many people present there. They don't feel any responsibility themselves to take action and call the police or call the medical assistance to get this man some medical need. It's not because, I don't think it's because these people, they don't care about this man that's convulsing on the floor. I think it's because they don't really feel the pressure to respond to that person. Why? It's because, as I mentioned before, there's so many people around. They don't think it's, that, they don't think it's their responsibility. They might think, oh, someone, someone else probably has already called the police. I don't have to call them. Or, no one else is doing anything, so it must not be that serious. So, yeah, so these, this, a large group of, a large crowd of people can have an effect of making you become a passive person, making you not what a disciple is. And I, I got this part from a commentary, and I thought this was really, um, really brought, brought to the point what I was trying to say. It says, the throng in the courtyard is blocking the needy party from reaching Jesus, those four guys. Being a part of the crowd around Jesus is not the same as being a disciple of Jesus. 
The crowd stands and observes, but disciples must commit themselves to action. So that's what's separating the crowd from discipleships, from disciples. The crowd, they just sit and listen. They don't do anything. But disciples, real disciples, they put into action the teachings that they've heard from Jesus, and they actually put into action the things that they're supposed to do. So it's my second point. Oh, wait, well, let's read this verse too. <laughs> Mark, 15, 8, Mark 15, 8 through 15. This is just an example of the crowd being, um, not knowing anything about Jesus, but just being in the crowd. And yeah, so the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to his custom. Then he answered them, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For, realize, for he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priest stirred up, stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. Pilate spoke to them again. Then what do you wish me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Pilate asked them, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. So in this passage, you see the crowd, they're completely ignorant. They, they deny Jesus. They uh, deny um, Jesus from being released. Instead, they want this, this infamous uh, criminal to be released instead, Barabbas. So the, so the crowd is showing, once again, that they don't have any insider information on Jesus. They're not a part of the inside crowd, but they're on the outside. That's the reason they make this very foolish choice of releasing Barabbas instead of Jesus. So my second point. So the four friends are the real disciples. Even though the pastor doesn't call them disciples, per se, I believe they were doing the actions of what real disciples would do. So let's read this passage. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. I also did a children's sermon on this. And as, a, as an ex- illustration, I had four of the children come up. And I also had uh, Isaiah come up. I don't know if you know who Isaiah is. It's, <laughs> it's uh, Julia and uh, Linda's cousin. He's a pretty big boy. Pretty big boy, right? So he's very heavy. So I had four, four of the guys, uh, four of the little kids come, and I had a little blanket on the floor. And I had Isaiah lie on the floor, lay, lay on that blanket. And I had the four kids try to lift up this blanket and walk around. And, of course, it was very, very hard, right? This, uh, when there's someone on a mat and it's just dead weight and you got to carry it around, it's not easy. It's not easy. So you can imagine these four, four friends, they're carrying around this one man on this mat, on this wooden board, and they're trying to get him to see Jesus. And they see that the, the doorway is blocked. And of course, it's very troublesome for them because they're carrying this man on board and it's very tiring and it's very heavy for them. But just because the doorway isn't blocked, it doesn't, it doesn't deter them. They're trying to do anything possible for them, for, for these four guys, to have this man meet Jesus. Because they realize Jesus is this great teacher. But, and he's not only just a great teacher, but he heals and he performs miracles. So these four friends weren't going to let just this little obstacle stop them, stop them from bringing this man to Jesus. So what do they do? They go looking for another opening, right? They're going up. And they climb the roof, finally. And then they break apart the roof. And you can imagine the house owner is just sitting down there, probably listening to Jesus. And he looks at the roof because dust is starting to come down. 
And he's looking and he notices that his roof is being broken apart. And so these guys, they're breaking this property, breaking this roof. And then they lower, they start lowering this guy down. And you can imagine how, how tough it must have been on them. They're bringing this guy down. They probably had to put some ropes on him, lowering him down. And they had to also be careful because Jesus was below them. They didn't want to drop Jesus on this guy, right? So, yeah, so these friends showed real determination. And they were totally different from the crowd because the crowd sat and listened. But these, these four, they put into action. They were in action. And I think that's what separates disciples from the crowds. The crowds, they sit and listen, but disciples... They're men of actions. They're men, they're men that bring the teachings of Jesus forward. They're ones that live out the truth and really just want to bring people to the salvation of Jesus. And these disciples, I mean, these, uh, let's call them disciples, these four friends, these disciples, I believe is the personification of what discipleship is about, bringing people to Jesus. These guys wouldn't let any, any obstacle stop them from bringing this man to get healed from Jesus. And this kind of reminds me of uh, this friend that I had met in YWAM. His name is uh, Caleb Bannister. He was a, he was a Kenyan dude. Um, he's, I want to say he was 18 at the time. So he was a young dude, young dude. But the moment I met him, I could tell this guy was a lot different from other people that I've met. He was, uh, right off the start, he was just incredibly warm, incredibly um, friendly, and just just really opening and um, just really accepting of others. And when I met him, he uh, immediately took me under his arms and uh, made me a friend. Even though I was five years older than him, uh, I probably didn't want to be his friend, to be honest with you, but he still took me in as a friend, and he treated me as such. And I appreciated him so much. And during the first first two weeks of YOM, it was a bit difficult. Um, I was still thought I was still too cool for everybody, right? didn't talk to anybody, um, was by myself. And yeah, I was not, at that point, I wasn't really getting much out of the program because I wasn't invested into it. I was um, not really caring about it. But as, as the week started to go and um, I, started to get op- I started to open up a little bit more, there was this one week that it came to um, called the Father Heart of God. And I might have shared this before, but as they were talking about the Father Heart of God, it really reminded me of, of God and um, about my own father and all these things. And at that time, I wasn't, I wasn't really ready to accept the full, um, I think, the full responsibility of what being a Christian was. But I was starting to be moved in that direction. And during that week, as my heart was getting softer and softer, and I was becoming more receptive to what God was trying to show me and what the Father heart of God was really about, I still had this slight barrier in front of me, my slight um, barrier of protection where I didn't want to become completely vulnerable in this open space. And we were praying, we were praying, and uh, I had my eyes opened. And um, yeah, I wasn't really into it at the time. But I noticed that my friend Caleb Bannister, he was sitting in the corner and he was uh, really just staring at me. <laughs> yeah, people stare at me. I don't know. He was just staring at me. And um, I was like, well, this is kind of weird. So I just closed my eyes, pretend like I didn't see him. But, you know, we already made 
we already made sort of eye contact. So he started to walk over. He started to crawl over because we were all on the ground. And, you know, we were praying. And I saw him, like, crawling over to me. And I was like, okay, this is about to go down, man. It's about to go down. And um, he just, yeah, he crawled over to me. And he tapped me on my shoulder. And he's like, Eugene, I feel like you're ready to accept Jesus into your life today. Like, really, really accept Jesus. And I was like, mm, okay, man. <laughs> and I said, okay, dude. And then he's, he's, he just started to talk to me. And he's like, dude, like, I've seen you. I've seen you. You're, you're much different. You're much more open than when you first got here. You know, you're talking to more people now. You're even smiling more now, dude. Trust me, bro. Like, I'll pray for you, and we'll go through this. We'll, um, we'll go through this together, and, you know, I'll help you along the way as well. And I listened to him, and I was still a little hesitant, but as he kept talking to me, and he kept talking to me and trying to convince me more and more, my heart finally just fully opened. And he prayed for me at that time, and we both prayed together, and I think we prayed for, like, I want to say 15, 20 minutes. At the time, that was the longest I've ever prayed. And um, it, was, it was truly, truly a blessing for me. I had not only received Christ that day, but I also received a lifelong buddy, a guy who can say that he was the one that brought me to Christ. And to this day, like, you know, of course, I don't talk to him every single day. It's kind of weird, right? But, I mean, there are, every once in a while, I will send him an email and we will, we will go back and forth, and I'll ask him about how his life is going. And he's still a part of, uh, he's actually still a part of YWAM. He's traveling the, traveling the country as a part of the dance team. And um, he, yeah, he's, he's really an inspiration for me and truly a blessing. And for me, he really reminds me of those four friends because no matter how many times I tried to push him away or, you know, acted ambivalent to what he was speaking to me about, he kept pushing forward and he kept uh, coming to me and trying to get me to see Jesus, to see Jesus' love. And I can't thank Caleb Bannister enough for it. I also have a little story of uh, a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a famous German, uh, I believe, theologian back in the days, back in the, uh, back in the times of uh, World War II and this man, I think, um, really personifies what also what being a disciple is all about as well. And he kind of makes it, show, he kind of explains it in this little um, this little passage that I have for you guys. That it's not about learning at church. It's not about praying. It's not about um, being present at church or um, listening to all these sermons or anything like that. But it's really about living living this life, right? Living this life as a follower and as, and as a disciple of Christ. So let me read this little passage for you guys. Dietrich, it's not up there, sorry. <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a professor of theology at the University of Berlin in Germany in the 1930s. At this time, German Christians were divided over Hitler. One group allied themselves with Hitler and they wanted a pure German nation, the Aryan nation. And they formed an official German church which supported Hitler and banned Jews from holding official positions in the church. Bonhoeffer was among those who could not, get, could, who could not go along with Hitler's anti-Jewish, radically German vision. With others, he set up an underground church which explicitly refused to ally itself to Hitler's Third Reich vision. It was dangerous, but it was worth it. In 1937, Bonhoeffer was sacked and he fled to London. 
Two years later, Bonhoeffer faced with the choice, was faced with the choice. He had been offered one of the most prestigious theology, theology appointments in the world, lecturing at Union Seminary in New York. But he also had another choice, or return to Germany to head up an illegal underground seminary for the churches who refused to go along with Hitler. He decides that his faith is meaningless if he takes the easy option, and he heads back to Germany and finds Hitler so evil that he abandons his commitment to nonviolence and gets involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler. The plot fails, and in 1943, Bonhoeffer is arrested, and in prison he leads worship services for his fellow prisoners until the faithful day of April 9th, 1945, when he was executed by the Nazis. Through all this, what distressed Bonhoeffer was that so many Christians could sell out, could sell out to Hitler's evil vision. How could people who own the same name of Christ so betray Christ? How could they pray in a church which banned Jews from holding office? It convinced Bonhoeffer that religious religiosity in and of itself was worth, worthless. It didn't matter how how it didn't matter how fervently a person believed in Jesus, or how many times each day they prayed, or how earnestly and sincerely they sang hymns on Sunday. In the end, the measure of spirituality is not how we are in the church, but how we are in the whole of life. In the end, the measure of spirituality is to live in the world as a man of Christ who is for others. So yeah, Diedrich Bonhoeffer says explicitly, it's not about listening to the best sermons, it's not about singing hymns at church, but it's about how you live. It's about how you can bring people to Christ. And I think, um, yeah, Diedrich Bonhoeffer's life is, the, is an attestment to the truth that he was saying in this piece. And I believe he was a true disciple of uh, Jesus Christ. Let me go to my third point. And my third point, it's, all right, let me read this passage too. <laughs> Matthew 4, 19, 20 says, And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. So disciples are fishing for people to bring them to the kingdom of Christ. <laughs> so Jesus forgives sins is my last point. It's a fairly simple point, right? It's, a, it's something we all know, and we all say Jesus forgives sins. But I think we're missing out on something very important. I think we're missing out on the fact that um, even though we know that Jesus forgives sins, I think it's important that we have to acknowledge those sins and we have to confess those sins to Jesus himself. We can't just take for granted that Jesus is going to forgive our sins, so we just live our lives and you know, don't even pray to God because we know that Jesus is going to forgive our sins. I think it's very important that we take time in our lives as well as to not only ask for God to forgive us our sins, but to say those sins to Jesus and to really take that power of sin away and give it to Jesus so he can cleanse our spirit, from, cleanse our spirit and make us new again. Let me read this passage. And said, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, which is easier to say to the paralytic. Your sins are forgiven or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up and take your mat and go to your home. And he stood up and he immediately took the mat and went out and before, before all of them. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So for people back in those days, it was, 
sin and um, physical ailments, they're very connected. They thought if you sinned, you were going to have some sort of uh, some sort of punishment. And many times those punishments came in the form of physical ailment or came as some other sort of ailment. So this man, when he, a lot of people, when they saw this man as a paralytic, they would have thought, oh, this guy's a sinner. That's the reason why he's not able to walk, and that's the reason why he has to be carried around by his friends on a mat. So Jesus was not only restoring this man, not only saying that, you know, I'm forgiving you of your sins, but he was also restoring this man back to society, saying that when I forgive your sins, not only will your sins be forgiven, but because, you're, because people back in those days thought that sins were correlated with your physical ailments, not only would he heal those, heal those sins, but he'll also heal those physical ailments. So when Jesus was forgiving this man, he not only restored him back to the community through the forgiveness of sins, but he also restored this man back to the community through the use of his legs to become a full-bodied full participant in this community. So in this next passage right here, it says, Psalm 32, 5, it says, Then I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So this passage, again, is really showing the importance of acknowledging your sin to, to, Jesus, uh, to God, to Jesus. Because when you acknowledge those sins, he will, he will uh, you know, cover those transgressions. And he will forgive you of your sins and forgive you of those guilts that is associated with those sins. And I have a closing uh, little story that I found. It's, I don't know if it's completely ap applicable, applicable to what I'm trying to speak about, but I think it is applicable enough. So, so I'm going to share the story. And it's not, it's not specifically about Christians, but... It's about Catholics, <laughs> but I also believe, um, I don't know, Pastor Ken might think differently, but I also believe that Catholics are also our brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, yeah, so let me read this story out loud. Until her daughter's baptism in September 2008, Linda Kruger was just a twice-a-year mass-goer at the Seattle's Christ, at the Seattle's Christ the King Parish. At the baptism, the pastor, Father Raymond Cleveland, handed out a flyer for inquiry classes about the Catholic faith. Kruger had received the sacraments of initiation as a Byzantine Catholic baby, but she didn't know much about the faith. The class topics intrigued her, and she started attending. Early the next year, she went on a silent retreat led by Father Cleveland at, at the Palisades Retreat Center in the Federal Way. It was really the first time in my life I think I've really prayed in depth, and I loved it, she said. I was just in prayer and study from Friday night to Sunday afternoon, just about just about solid, and I love. Oh, that's so weird. Just about solid, and I just loved it. Kruger had been to <laughs> Kruger had been to the sacrament of reconciliation since high school, but when Father Cleveland asked if she'd like to make a confession, she jumped at the chance. For twenty years, she lived a very self-centered life. She said she committed nearly every sin in the book, and I had carried the burdens for years: sorrow, regret, embarrassment. But that night, but that day she confessed it all and cried. But it wasn't a sor sorrowful cry, she said. It was relief and joy and purity at a second chance. When she got home from the retreat, Kruger didn't know quite how to tell her husband that he had now had a new wife. 
And she says this about confessing. She says, when you come out of confessing, you are not the same person that went in. Because the burdens in your heart, the sorrow, the guilt are absolved, she said. And that is the greatest gift from the church and from Jesus. That a person can be purified or cleansed or relieved and made joyous and made a new creation. So in concluding, I want to ask you guys, are you guys the crowd that sits around Jesus, preventing others from reaching him? Being not, being not a part of the inside, but being a part of the outside, people that don't put his uh, words or his teachings into action. Are you guys disciples or his four friends doing anything possible to bring your friend to Jesus? Even if it is carrying that man on a mat and lowering him down a roof. And do you guys know that your sins are forgiven? So let's pray. Yeah, dear Heavenly Father, thank you um, just so much for giving me this opportunity to share your words today, Lord. Thank you so much for uh, just this lesson that you've laid out in Mark, Lord. We, we can't adore you enough, and you're just so majestic and just so spectacular, Lord. We are nothing without you, and we just love you so much. Uh, yeah, just as we go into this next week, Lord, let us uh, keep our eyes on you and keep our eyes on the truth of who you are and what you represent. And we pray all these, all these things in your name. We just name we pray. Amen.